Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was just after midnight on September 10th, 1926. The chill of night crept into 22-year-old Clara Olson's bones as she stepped out of her boyfriend's car. Clara stood for a moment next to her boyfriend, Erdman, as well as a mysterious, unnamed man whom she'd never met prior to this night. The three had traveled 40 miles outside of the couple's hometown to a wooded area of rural Wisconsin. But only two of the travelers would continue their journeys after that night. There, among the trees, with no one else for miles, Clara collapsed face first onto the ground. She'd been struck in the back of the head. The blow killed her and her unborn child instantly. Clara's body was left in a shallow grave with nothing but loose twigs and branches to cover her burial site. She was left there in the cold. Clara's satchel of clothes, which she had packed for the journey, was eventually buried in its own shallow grave, about halfway between Clara's gravesite and Erdman's home. Erdman had told Clara not to bring anything with her, but she didn't listen. She thought they were secretly eloping to legitimize their unborn child and packed a proper dress for the ceremony. Clara had disobeyed another of Erdman's requests as well. He told her to burn all of their love letters before coming to meet him that night, but she secretly kept two, hiding them in her bodice. One of the letters was a romantic one that Clara cherished, and the other contained Erdman's instructions for their plans that night. They would become some of the only clues into Clara's untimely demise. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Clara Olson. Last week, we covered Clara and Erdman's year-long courtship, Clara's unexpected pregnancy, and Erdman's desire to avoid marrying her. This week, we'll cover the fallout of Clara's murder, detailing how this seemingly open-and-shut case became a fruitless search for justice. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On the morning of September 10, 1926, Erdman Olson arrived home to his family farm in La Crosse, Wisconsin. 
His parents, Albert and Anna Olson, heard Erdman come inside around 10 a.m., turn on the radio, and fix himself something to eat. After finishing his food, Erdman went upstairs to his room and fell asleep. Around that same time, Clara's parents, Chris and Dina, began their day. But before they could start their chores, Chris discovered that their daughter was not in her bedroom. He searched the house for any sign of her and noticed a folded piece of paper tucked under a lamp. It was a letter from Clara, written the previous night, explaining she wouldn't be gone long. Panicked, Chris woke up his sons. Clara's brothers thought that she might have snuck out with Erdman the night before. He was one of the only people they knew who owned a car, so they ran outside to see if there were any fresh tire marks. Sure enough, they found tracks on the edge of their property that headed in the direction of Erdman's home. Clara's brother Bernard decided to walk over. He found more tire marks outside Erdman's house, and they matched the ones on his family's land. Bernard also noticed that the tracks from his property went past Erdman's, then returned from that direction and back into the drive, where Erdman's Ford Roadster was now parked. He thought that Erdman had picked Clara up, they'd gone somewhere together, and then returned home. When Bernard approached the front door and knocked, he'd hoped Clara would be the one to answer. They'd laugh off her blunder and convince their father to forgive her. But when Erdman opened the door... Rubbing his tired eyes, Bernard frowned. Erdman, I've come to collect Clara. She's not here. I know she went out with you last night. I see the tire tracks. Now go get her. I swear, she's not here. But okay, yeah, I did see Clara last night. She asked me for $50 and to take her to Viroqua. Viroqua? She said she was unhappy with farm life and wanted to get away. Probably saw that I'm doing well in college and wanted to make something of herself, too. Viroqua is north of La Crosse. Your tire tracks are coming from the south. Tell me the truth. Oh, <laughs> well, we, um, we had to make a stop first. <clears throat> Hello, Bernard. How can we help you? Morning, Mrs. Olson. I'm looking for Clara. She wasn't home when we woke up, and I believe she went out with your son last night. Well, she's not here. But if you'd like to take a look around for yourself, come on inside. Out of politeness, Bernard followed Anna into the farmhouse. He checked the rooms for his sister, even though he already knew she wasn't there. He eventually headed back home, a sinking feeling in his gut the whole way. Meanwhile, Erdman slunk back to his room. His mother saved him from digging a deeper lie, but she had no idea what she'd helped him cover up. He was due back at Gale College the next day, so he told himself that he'd just have to wait it out, and soon it would all be forgotten. While Erdman may have been able to put Clara out of his mind, the people of La Crosse were captivated by Clara's mysterious disappearance. Rumors swirled that Erdman was involved. No one thought he'd outright harmed her, but they did believe he was hiding something. Clara's family was also convinced that Erdman was connected. They believed that Erdman dropped Clara off somewhere, maybe with a promise to return later, but then deserted her. But they didn't want to jump to conclusions just yet. After all, they trusted their daughter, 
They waited two weeks in hopes that they'd get a letter from Clara explaining where she was. But when nothing came, Chris and Dina Olson decided to sort fact from fiction themselves. They paid a visit to Erdman's parents to see what they had to say about Clara and Erdman's relationship, and if they knew anything about the night she vanished. Hello, Anna. We'd like to speak with you and your husband, if you don't mind. Albert's not home right now. What can I help you with? I'm sure you've heard that our daughter, Clara, is missing. It's been two weeks, and we're desperate. Apparently, she planned to go out with Erdman the night she disappeared. We were hoping you might know something. Anything. Uh, Look, the situation is pretty cut and dry. What do you mean by that? It's the same as with any other girl in her condition. Clara will come home once she has the baby. Probably around New Year's, if I had to guess. You'll just have to wait until then. A a baby? Anna watched as the Olsons digested the news. She'd thought they already knew about the pregnancy and felt embarrassed that she revealed such sensitive information this way. But at the same time, she was tired of the rumors about her son. Maybe Erdman wasn't a perfect gentleman, but he wasn't caught up in this. Clearly, Clara went off to have the baby by herself. Her parents had no reason to be so worried. But Chris and Dina felt differently. As they walked back home, they felt more certain that something was seriously wrong. They could understand why Clara kept her pregnancy from them at first, Certainly, they wouldn't have been thrilled, but left without options, she would have eventually come to them. She at least would have written home by now. Clara's parents realized that their daughter must be in trouble. They had to do something. And if Erdman's parents weren't going to help, they'd go to Erdman himself. So Chris grabbed a ride with two of his friends and drove north to Gale College to find out where Clara was. Coming up, Chris and Erdman face off. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. And now back to the story. After two weeks with no word from his daughter, Chris Olson went searching for answers. On September 26, 1926, he rode with some friends to confront her boyfriend, Erdman, determined to learn the truth. 
When they arrived at Gale College, Chris told the other men to wait in the car, then made his way toward the central building. It didn't take long for him to spot Erdman outside. When he saw Chris coming, Erdman tried to make a run for it. Erdman, I just want to talk. I don't know where she is, Mr. Olsen. You told her in your letter to meet you at midnight, didn't you? Well, uh... Don't deny it! All right, fine, I did. And then I took her to Viroqua and gave her $50, just like I told Bernard. No, Bernard saw the tire tracks leading south. Look, son, Clara is of age. I don't have any strings on her. All I'm asking is that you have her write me so I know she's okay. I don't think I can do that. I'm asking you for a simple thing. Okay, okay. Give me a few days. I'll bring her back Thursday morning. You'll bring her back? Yes. Good. Now, come tell that to my friends. I want them to hear it because if Clara doesn't come home on Thursday, I'm calling the sheriff on you. Erdman repeated his promise to Chris's friends. Then the three men left for lacrosse. As Erdman watched them drive away, his pulse quickened. He couldn't understand why those words had come out of his mouth. He'd woven himself even tighter into his own web of lies. And now, Chris was threatening legal action. Later, schoolmates would report that that night, Erdman cried for hours in his dorm room. When he finally pulled himself together, he could only see one path forward. If he wanted to be a free man, he had to get away. He steeled himself, sat down at his desk, and composed two letters. The first was for Chris Olson. I'm going to make myself scarce enough so you won't find me or Clara from now on. As far as I'm concerned, just where she is is my business. At the present and after the big bunch of lip I got from you, I am not caring a great deal either. There are things you better not try, and that is to drag my family into this matter. The second letter was far more difficult for Erdman to write. It was for his parents. I am leaving tonight for some place where no one knows. Sometime I may write to you, but I can't say that you will ever see me again. Unless it is in a coffin. Perhaps you may never want to see me again. I would not blame you if you don't. Please try to bear this with bravery and forget me, as I am not worthy of your memory. You have not failed as parents, but I have failed as a son. Erdman mailed the letters, then packed a suitcase, then took off. When the letters arrived three days later, tensions boiled over. Albert and Anna stormed over to Chris and Dina's farm. They yelled at Chris for threatening their son and accused him of scaring him away. Chris shooed them off his land. Once they were gone, he decided it was time to get the authorities involved. Albert and Anna may fancy themselves righteous enough to storm onto someone's property, but he would handle things by the book. However, Chris wasn't confident enough in the local sheriff. He wanted men with more experience to search for his daughter. So he hired two private investigators, John Sullivan, a retired chief detective from Milwaukee, and William Caswin, a retired detective from Madison. 
As the two bigwig investigators traveled across the Midwest looking for Clara, Chris and Bernard organized a search in La Crosse. Even if they couldn't find Clara themselves, they hoped they could at least help gather enough evidence to warrant Erdman's arrest. But after two months, Clara was still nowhere to be found, and her family hadn't uncovered any new information. Chris and the detectives decided that a judge should see what they did have. So they scheduled a meeting with Judge C.H. Speck. As you know, my daughter, Clara, went missing on September 10th. We have reason to believe that her boyfriend, Erdman Olson, is behind her disappearance. Show us what you've got, then. Yes, Your Honor. Here are two letters that Erdman wrote after Chris visited him at school. The boy tells his parents he intends to flee and threatens our client. What else? Your Honor, Erdman's tire tracks were spotted leaving our client's property, then heading south past his own house. Based on this, his story of that night doesn't add up. Which isn't surprising. Many people saw him drunk at a nearby dance earlier that evening. In general, testimonies of the boy's character aren't good. Finally, Caswood and I scoured the entire Midwest and... Your Honor... Clara was pregnant, but there are no reports of her at any hospital. I'll have a word with the district attorney. We'll see what we can do. Chris and the P.I.s waited with bated breath. If they couldn't obtain a warrant, they'd be at a standstill. Finally, Judge Speck returned with the district attorney in tow. He introduced himself as J.S. Earl and promptly presented a warrant for Erdman's arrest. Chris breathed a sigh of relief. While it was somewhat unprecedented to issue a warrant without a body, the judge felt that there was enough motive and circumstantial evidence to authorize it. Plus, the fact that Erdman fled made him look suspicious. The district attorney felt certain that someone was keeping secrets, and if that someone was Erdman, he would find him. With the arrest warrant issued, the hunt for Clara picked back up. More people joined the effort as newspaper reports of her disappearance sprang up across the region. Chris and his sons gathered over a hundred local farmers and organized a search party in Wisconsin. Chris offered a $200 reward, the equivalent of thousands of dollars today, for anyone who could find anything related to Clara's whereabouts. Unfortunately, the harsh Midwest winter was upon them. A blizzard halted the search. Now Clara's family worried that if she was still alive, the freezing conditions would kill her. The anxiety weighed on Chris. He recalled the dream he had the night Clara disappeared. He'd seen her laying face down, dead in a shallow grave. The image haunted him and he wondered to his friends if it wasn't so much a dream as a premonition. Meanwhile, across town, another set of concerned parents lay awake at night. Albert and Anna had now lost their child. They had no idea where Erdman was, or if they'd ever see him again. There had been a few supposed sightings since his photo appeared in the paper, but they didn't lead to anything. However, in late November... Shortly after the arrest warrant was issued, a newspaper published a report that Erdman had cashed some checks in Minneapolis before skipping town. If this were true, 
Albert and Anna felt some relief that he was holding out okay, even if he didn't feel safe contacting them. Then, on December 2nd, 1926, the snow lifted enough for the search party to embark. Within the span of a few days, the team grew from almost 100 to 1,000. They cast a wide net and set out. At about 10.30 a.m., a farmer named Charles Bound surveyed the wooded area of Battle Ridge. He stumbled upon a matted patch of ground and noticed that the frozen mud was slightly yellow in color. An experienced farmer, Bound knew this meant that someone had turned the earth before it froze. He picked up a stick and dug through the patch of dirt. He was able to break up the hardened soil. What he uncovered shook him to the core. The heel of a woman's boot appeared out of the earth. Bound immediately alerted the others. Something's over here. Come quick. This is the girl. They said she was wearing boots. I don't know. We'll have to uncover her to find out. Help me. Be careful now. If it's not her, it's someone. Ugh. What is that? Oh no. Oh my goodness. Once they uncovered the body, they instantly recognized Clara's clothing. She lay face down so they could see the horrible wound on the back of her head and blood in her hair. All they could do now was notify Chris and Dina and the authorities. Clara had been found, and she was dead. Coming up, the hunt for justice grows stronger. And now, back to our story. Three months after 22-year-old Clara Olson vanished, the gruesome truth was finally uncovered. On December 2, 1926, members of a search party found her murdered body. They could see a bloody wound on the back of her head and assumed it was what killed her. Her father's dream the night she disappeared had been a premonition after all. She was buried face down in a shallow grave, just like he'd seen. However, he didn't have to witness the image in real life. Chris had been searching elsewhere when Clara's body was found. Rather, he and Dina identified their daughter later on at the morgue as they held each other and wept. As the Olson family clung to each other, tears streaming down their faces, District Attorney J.S. Earle approached them somberly. He promised to bring Clara's murderer to justice. Too exhausted to speak, Chris only nodded. Earl got to work scheduling an autopsy. At the same time, the news spread through La Crosse, eventually reaching Albert and Anna Olson. Clara was murdered, and their son was the primary suspect. Despite the overwhelming evidence mounting against their son, Albert and Anna maintained his innocence. They grew more and more defensive throughout a slew of press interviews. Now listen here. Like I've said time and time again, I don't believe he's innocent because he's my son. I believe it because it's true. Lots of evidence to the contrary, sir. Circumstantial evidence. I was home that night. You can't tell me that boy could dig a grave, bury someone, then simply come home to relax. It's absurd. 
There were no stains or dirt on his clothes and shoes either. There is nothing to link him to this crime. If he didn't do it, then who did? What do you think happened? All I know is that my son did not kill that girl. Then where is he? Why isn't he here to defend himself? Don't you think I want to know where he is? He ran away because Chris Olsen threatened him. And he certainly can't come back now. Not with the way everyone's treating him. My poor boy. <gasps> He's innocent. Their defenses rang hollow to the rest of the community. The townspeople believed Clara's autopsy would incriminate Erdman anyway. So they ignored Albert and Anna's claims and waited in anticipation for the results. Earl understood the severity of the situation, so he brought in an expert, famed pathologist Dr. Charles H. Bunting. The county sheriff and a court reporter were also present for the procedure. Please note the personal items of the deceased as I remove them. One brown knit coat, one green and black silk dress, one red wool sweater, two boots, Two stockings, one maternity corset, and hang on, what is this? Looks like a big bloody mess to me. Sheriff Sherwood, please. It appears to be paper. Yes, it's a letter of some sort. No, two letters. Who are they from? Erdman? Let's see them. Don't you dare touch those. I'll finish the examination and then the district attorney will look at the letters. Please, let me work. Dr. Bunting completed the autopsy and verified that the blow to the head was the cause of death. He determined that the murder weapon must have been a large, heavy, and blunt instrument. The pathologist also carefully noted that there was no evidence of sexual assault or attempted abortion and that the child Clara had been carrying was a girl. Finally, Bunting passed the letters off to the DA, who confirmed that they were from Erdman. He'd instructed Clara to burn their letters and keep their planned elopement a secret. Earl became certain that Erdman was guilty of her murder. He set out, more determined than ever, to find the missing fugitive. When Earl interviewed students at Gale College, they told him that Erdman used to make fun of Clara to his friends. He mocked her naivete and lack of education. But the most striking discovery came from people in La Crosse. They told Earl a story that had been kept so secret, Erdman's parents never even talked about it. According to the townspeople, in July of 1918, when Erdman was just nine years old, he and a friend, five-year-old Charlie Hevron, were playing a game of Wild West when tragedy struck. Erdman apparently wanted to make the game more realistic, so he retrieved a shotgun. But he didn't know how to use it properly. He loaded the 12-gauge gun with a 16-gauge bullet, jamming it into the chamber. Then he held the gun out to Charlie. The younger boy hesitated, but Erdman assured him it would be okay. Charlie took the gun and the boys resumed their game. But when Charlie barely even touched the trigger, the gun exploded. He was killed instantly. At the time, the sheriff's department ruled it an accident. Eight years later, however, with another violent death connected to him, people wondered if the now missing Erdman had a predisposition for evil all along. 
D.A. Earl now realized that Erdman might be more than just a troublemaker and bad boyfriend. He continued the interviews and discovered another surprising piece of the puzzle. Apparently, Erdman might not have acted alone. He'd gone to a dance the night of Clara's disappearance. Earl spoke with party guests, who claimed that Erdman drove off with a strange man sitting next to him in the car. Chris Olson clung to this detail. He couldn't bear the thought that his daughter might have dated a cold-blooded killer. So did Erdman's parents, who, of course, hoped their son would be found innocent of murder. But to everyone's dismay, no one could identify the mysterious man. D.A. Earl couldn't even obtain a valid description of him. And as the trail to Erdman's potential partner ran cold, so did the trail to Erdman himself. Newspapers across the globe had picked up the story of Clara's murder, and the reward money for Erdman's capture was raised to $5,000. By March of 1927, reports of Erdman sightings popped up in various states across the country, and even Norway, but none of them panned out. Over six months had passed since Clara was killed, and the DA still had no sight of his suspect, no picture of the possible accomplice, and no idea where or even what the murder weapon was. So, on March 27th, when a package was discovered about halfway between Clara's gravesite and Erdman's home, Earl hoped for conclusive evidence. But the package only contained Clara's extra clothes, including an ivory dress that she had brought to wear for her wedding. And with that, the case dried up. Nothing could be done to bring Clara justice. After the investigation fizzled out, Clara's family tried to move on as best they could. Clara's brothers never married, but her closest sibling and confidant, Alice, wed in 1944 and had a son. Dina passed away that same year, and Chris, four years later, at age 81. The reward for Erdman's capture continued to be offered for 13 years. Sightings continued to crop up all over the globe until as late as 1949. Some thought that Erdman started his own tobacco farm in the South, and others believed he worked on ranches out West. There were also stories that he enlisted in the Navy or simply blended into a big city somewhere. But none of these rumors were ever proven. Erdman presumably lived out his days, a chance he likely took away from Clara. But with the notoriety surrounding the case and Erdman's fugitive status, some may find solace in the fact that he could never live in peace. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Clara Olson's murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in Wisconsin, the Clara Olson case, by Larry Sheckle, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Kai Jordan, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, Cameron Nicod, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>